Well, I'm super excited to be speaking with you guys tonight. Um, I was tempted to go and get some more Twinkies, but then I remember that German and I killed a whole box by ourselves the other day. So I figured it probably wasn't like a great idea to go back there, but I'm glad y'all are here to enjoy that. So I'm super excited to be talking to you guys tonight. If you were here last week, you remember that um, Blaine started our series on Colossians. And I'm really excited about it because I think it's really cool for us to be able to just take a book of the Bible and really study it deep and understand the context and really dig into it together. And I think a lot of us are probably like, you know, if we grew up in church, we've heard stories in Sunday school. We know like verses here, passages here, and we're kind of familiar with some stuff, but maybe we haven't taken the time to really understand something in its context and in it by itself. So we get to really like dig deep. So I'm really excited about that. Um, so we're just going to go ahead and get right into it if you guys are ready for that. Um, if you were here last week, um, Blaine had some great terms for us that he threw up there, um, just about kind of the context behind the book of Colossians. Uh, so if you just throw up, I think there's some terms up there. Um, so the book of Colossians is actually written, a letter written to a place, Coloss, right? We talked about that. And the people are the Colossians. That's where the name of the book comes from, in case you didn't recognize that. I got you. Um, and so this, this book of the Bible, we call it a book of the Bible, but it's actually a letter. It was a letter written by Paul to the church at Coloss. And it's actually called also a prison epistle because it's one of the few letters that he wrote while he was in prison. Um, at the time, he was arrested. He actually was arrested multiple times um, for basically declaring Jesus of being God. And so this is one of the letters that he wrote from prison. And the recipients is the church at Colossus, which is actually not a church that Paul started. If you know Paul and you're familiar with what he's done in the New Testament, you know that he spent a lot of time traveling and um, preaching the gospel and building churches. But this was actually one of the few churches that he did not build, but one of his colleagues, Epaphras, started it. And so he is writing this letter to the believers there, um, not even having met them, actually. And so uh, one of the things that's really interesting is I was studying Colossians and um, learning more about it. I found that a lot of scholars and pastors and theologians describe Colossians as being a book that's ultimately about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. And so I would love for us, not even just tonight while I'm speaking, but even as we go through this whole series, to kind of keep that in our minds. Like, what does it mean for Jesus to be supreme and for him to be sufficient in all things and in everything? Like, how does it all kind of tie together? So I'd love for us to kind of be keeping that in the back of our mind as we think about themes in the book. So um, I'm going to be teaching on Colossians chapter 2. We're going to um, start to dig into it. And so in this uh, second chapter of Colossians, Paul is writing, again, like I said, to these people that he's never met before. He's in jail, but he's heard about it from his friend Epaphras, that they're doing really great things. And so he writes a letter to them to encourage them. But actually, we see here in chapter 2 that there's actually a warning that Paul is also giving them. And so I'm actually just going to go through and read chapter 2. I encourage you, if you have your Bible, it can be paper on, on your, or on your phone. You're a Christian either way. Don't worry. Um, you can just follow along. It's helpful to be able to see where I'm going. We're going to kind of talk through... Um, this second chapter as I read through it. So we're going to start Colossians 2, um, just starting in chapter 1, or in verse 1. And in verse 1 it says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally, which is basically everyone because he's never been to this church. Um, <laughs> he says, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. So we start to kind of see the warning here a little bit. Someone's trying to teach them a different theology or a different philosophy. <laughs> For though I am absent from you in body, I'm in jail, I'm in present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith is. 
starting in verse 6, he says, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Basically, he's saying, hey, remember when you first met Jesus and you were super excited about him and you loved him and he was all you're thinking about? Keep that same energy. Okay, verse 8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross." So we kind of start to see here now a little bit of the warning, a little bit. He's talking about people who are talking about spiritual and elemental powers, and he's saying, don't, don't even worry about those things because Jesus has already conquered that. So that's like a, the first part of his warning. Um, and then he goes a little bit further into the next part. In verse 16, he says, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are all rules and regulations that the church had, told them they had to follow to be a Christian. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they've seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual minds. So he's saying a lot of people don't let them make you feel bad because they're doing all these right things and seem they have it all together. Because when people look like they have it all together, they also probably don't. So he's saying don't let them make you feel like you're lesser than because you're not doing what they're doing. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. Verse 20, he says, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So what's happening here? What's going on here? Paul is giving a warning, and essentially his warning is actually a warning against temptation, which you're like, well, what's the temptation? The temptation is against having a, a philosophy or a theology that is anything but Jesus. Because if you look at it, Paul wrote this letter. It wasn't necessarily that they were believing these things, they were doing these things, but people were trying to get them to believe it. So it was like a temptation. So he says, hey, you guys know Jesus. I'm really encouraged. That's really great. But I hear that people are trying to tempt you to deviate from the gospel of Jesus and to deviate from who he is. And so he recognizes that as Christians, after we initially follow Jesus, as we continue to follow along, we are often tempted to kind of have this uh, theology that deviates from Jesus. And so I think it's interesting because it seems like Paul, what, the way that I read it, is almost like warning against like two different extremes, like two different things. He's warning against believing in these mystical powers and these things and feeling like we're, we're victims to fatalism. But then he's also warning against having to follow all these rules to be saved. And today when we talk about stuff like this, we use words for this called like 
lawlessness, and then legalism, right? And what those big fancy words basically mean is, is there's kind of these two different ways of viewing Jesus and viewing grace. Because lawlessness on one end would say, oh, well, you know, Jesus already died for my sins, um, everything that I've done and will do, he loves me, so I'm going to do whatever I want to do. You know, it's like it's all up to fate. It doesn't really matter. I can live however I want because Jesus loves me. Like, that's lawlessness. But then legalism, on the other hand, would say, well, you know, I have to do all these things. There's all these rules I have to follow. There are all these things that I need to observe in order to be saved. And I think we often look at these two different things. We're trying to figure out, well, where, what, what do I do with them? But one of the things that I've come to recognize and to realize is that often when we're faced with sort of like two different things and we are trying to figure out which one is the right one, especially when they both seem bad, <laughs> it's often because we're actually not asking the right question. And so we're stuck with those two options because we think those are the only ones. And so I've been thinking about that a lot, about like why, like why do we often ask the wrong question and what should we be asking? And I'll tell you why I thought about this. It's going to seem unrelated, but stick with me, okay? So I was having a conversation with one of my friends one day. And um, we were talking about like new movies that were coming out. And so I was like, wow, this is really cool. Like, I feel like a lot of movies are uh, showing like black characters and representation. I was like, it's Black History Month. This is really cool. But then I was like, why does it seem like every time there is a character who's an animated black character, they like turn into something? Have you noticed that? It's like, oh, uh, now they're a frog. And now they're a pigeon. Now they're a ghost. And I was like, that's cool. But like, could they just be a human for the whole movie? That'd be really cool. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so I was like, well, why does this happen? Like, it's so frustrating. Like, I can get to be black for the whole movie. Like, that'd be great. And so then I started asking the question. I was like, okay, well, well, what are what are the options? Like, what's worse, right? Like, we have a movie where there's representation from a black character, but they're only human for less than half the movie. You know, so we have that. Or should the movie just never get made, and then we don't have any black characters in the movies, and there's no representation? And I was like, well, which one is it? Is it is it either or? Like, both of those sound like pretty sucky options. And I was like, what do, what do I do with that? But then I realized, like, oh, that, that's not the question. These aren't the only options. Like, the bigger question is, who's, who's in the movie studios? Who's making these movies? Is it diverse? The question is, is there a way to make other movies starring black characters? So, so what I realized was, like, oh, we're often stuck with these two, almost like lesser of the two evils, because we're not actually asking the right question. And I found that Jesus does the same thing. If you ever read the Gospels, Jesus is really cryptic. I know that if I was a disciple, I would be so annoyed with Jesus because people would ask him questions, and he just wouldn't answer it. They'd be like, hey, Jesus, what's for dinner? He's like, man does not live by bread alone. <laughs> and you're like, all right, cool, but like, what's for dinner? <laughs> or they'd be like, Jesus, your family's outside. They want you. And he's like, my family are those who do the work of the Lord. And you're like, OK, but your mom is outside, and she wants me, what should I tell her? What do I do? So I think I would be so frustrated if I was one of the disciples that he wasn't answering my question. But I've realized that often when Jesus does that, it's true. He's not answering their question. But what he's really doing is answering the question that they should have been asking. And so they're asking him about dinner and things that he's like, I'm not even concerned about. It's not even part of the equation. This is the more important thing. And so Paul's doing the same thing in this letter where he's saying, you guys are asking the wrong questions and looking at the wrong things, and I want you to see this differently, because you're not victim to the uncertainty of spiritual powers, but you're also not bound to the laws and regulations of the Old Testament laws. And so I think what we would think is that, okay, well, how do I reconcile this? Like, there's probably a balance, right? You know, like, I have to experience grace, but I also need to do the things that Jesus told me. So maybe there's a balance, or, or maybe it's a both and, but Paul comes and says, no, no, no. It's not a balance. It's not a both and. It's actually a neither nor. 
like both of these are, are bad options. They're not good things because your salvation is bigger than just doing the right thing or doing the wrong thing. I think we often think that Christianity is about going from being a bad person to a good person or a person who did the wrong thing to the right thing or someone who listened to Beyonce to now worship music. That's definitely not true because I'm both, so that can't be it. Hallelujah. But the reality is that when we look big picture, Christianity is actually about going from being dead to alive. And that's like this whole different like, dimension in the way that we think about doing right things or wrong things. And so Paul's warning here is about falling into a faith that looks like anything other than Jesus. Because Jesus is more than theology. Like, he's an actual person who came and he died, and we can look to him and we can know him. And when he came and when he died, he conquered all those false gods and spiritual powers and all these things that we think we're victim to, and he also fulfilled the law so that we didn't have to do that either. If we look back at uh, verse 13 of chapter 2, it says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So like all those things that you're worried about, the things that you're trying to base your faith on, Jesus has conquered both of them. So why, why are we even talking about that? Why, why are we looking at that? Because it's not about knowing the answer to everything or, or choosing the right thing or the wrong thing. And one of the things that I think I learned once I came to college and I was no longer just around like my Christian friends that I had in high school. Now I was around friends who weren't saved and were doing things that I couldn't co-sign with. And I was trying to figure out, okay, God, what's the right Christian thing to do in this situation? Like, what, what's the right thing? But it actually wasn't about that. It was really about being close enough to Jesus to follow his heartbeat and his way of life. Because the reality is life isn't black and white. There are gray areas, and that's the reality. But Jesus does know the answer, but you just have to be close enough to him to be able to follow behind you and what you should do. And that comes in finding new life in Christ and having the spirit within you. So as I was preparing this message, I was kind of realizing that I think in a lot of ways, I'm probably preaching to the choir. I think most of us in this room probably have an understanding of the gospel, and we know that we cannot earn our salvation. Like, I think we know that. Like, you know that Jesus came, he died for our sins, he's offered us grace, we couldn't earn it, we don't deserve it. We know all that, right? So I don't think I need to remind us of that. But I think the real question that we have to grapple with tonight is bigger. It's kind of that third option, that, third, that other dimension of a question is, is, if we know that we can't earn our salvation, why are we so tempted to live out our faith like we can't? Because I know I experienced that a lot. We're like, I know, like, of course I can't earn my salvation. Like, it's the free gift of grace. But I'm always so concerned about making sure I do the right thing so I stand in the right standing with Jesus. Even though I know that it doesn't really affect it, but I'm still going to do it just, just in case maybe. You know, like, I, I'm still caught up in that. And, and I also often wonder why we do that. And I think for me, I often have found that that's actually, like, almost like partly my personality. I've learned that I can really understand the way I relate to Jesus when I understand the way I relate to like really earthly things like my friendships, my relationships, my family, school, work, ministry, like I can understand it that way. And I remember toward the end of college, I kind of had this understanding of my faith when I started looking at the way that I interacted with my classes and my professors. Because before I tell you what that way is, I would kind of like to take a poll just because I'm curious and I want to make this a vulnerable space. Um, how many of you are like, total suck-ups when it comes to your professors and their office hours. Like, how many of you go, like, pretty frequently, like, just because you're BFFs? Hi, Zach. Yeah, I figured you'd raise your hand. You go, you go <laughs> just to, like, catch up with them or suck up. 
Oh, Ife too? Wow, I see you, Grace. She, she put it out there. She was like, oh, maybe not. Uh, okay, very interesting, very interesting. How many of you have ever gone to your professor's office hours just to bargain for a better grade? I'll raise my hand. <laughs> yeah, there's more hands there. How many of you, out of curiosity, how many did it work? I put my hand down. <laughs> he was like, just try harder on the next assignment. I was like, yeah, that's right. You, you're right. That's true. <laughs> how many of you, this is next level, have ever cried in your professor's office hours to get a better grade? Wow, that's next level. That's impressive. I can't muster the tears, so I was never able to do it. What? You did it? Wow. wow. Ife raised her hand for like all three. Okay. I just want to point that. I'm not calling you out. I just want to like acknowledge, just speak some truth into your life. Um, so fun fact about me. I think in the like four years, eight semesters of college, every class, every professor, I think I've only ever gone to office hours three times. Yeah, don't do what I did. It's not great. Don't do that. But I only went three times. And two of the three times, I'm pretty sure, because it was required for my grades. So I was like, well, I guess I got to go. But I realized that my MO in classes was to like get an assignment, whether it's a paper, a project, presentation, a screenplay, whatever it was. And I would just do it on my own. That way, I could just do it and be like, Present to my professor and be like, look how impressive I am. Like, you didn't even know I was doing it. You didn't even know my topic. But look, I blew you away. Like, wasn't that great? In case you can't tell, I'm an Enneagram 3, okay? <laughs> hey, I see you, I see you. And so that was my MO. I would just like do it on my own. That way I could present it and show them how impressive I am. And of course, at the bottom, it was always like, this is great. You should talk more in class. And I was like, yeah, I don't like talking in class. So that's not going to happen. Um, but I realized that, yeah, I was doing well. And I would even get good grades on these assignments. But I started to realize towards the end of college that even though I was producing good things that by not going to my professors and not having them involved in the process or helping me that I was missing out on a certain level of relationship. And so I wasn't able to have my professors mentor me through things or provide feedback or be invested in my career and my success beyond the class. Even though I was making something good, there was a relationship that I was missing out on. And honestly, even on top of that, yeah, maybe I produced an A paper, maybe a B paper, you know, depending on the class. Uh, but the reality is that even though I thought I was doing my best, I still definitely would have produced something even better than I realized I could if I had asked for help and if someone had given me feedback. Because I thought I was doing my best, but I didn't even realize what I could produce by being in relationship and by asking people to help. And you can probably see where this is going, where I was like, oh my gosh. I do the same thing with Jesus. I take things and I go, okay, God, like, I know I don't need this for my salvation, but like, look, see what I did. Look at all these great things I did. Isn't that impressive? Isn't this so great? Look at me, I'm, I'm this great disciple of yours, and I've done this, and, I've, and I'm doing these things in front of you. Look how good I did just all on my own. But what I came to realize is that the more we lean on our own strength, the further we get from Jesus. Like it's literally like you're leaning on yourself and essentially just like leaning away from Jesus because you're relying on yourself and saying, I don't need you. I don't need anything that you have to offer because I can just do it totally on my own. In fact, are you impressed by the way that I did it on my own? but he's not there to help us if we're leaning on our own strength. Because if you're trying to save yourself, how can he be your savior? And if you're trying to fix yourself and make yourself better and be a better person, how can he come in and be the one to transform you? And if you're washing your own feet, how can he wash them? It's like we keep trying to do his job for him when he's never asked us to do that. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And it's kind of the story usually where it shows that Jesus came uh, not to be served, but to serve. And he's literally physically kneeling down and washing the feet 
of the disciples. And like, it's like dirty, nasty, crusty corns. Like they walked around barefoot back then. It was nasty. But he just kneeled down and he washed their feet. But while he's doing this, Peter comes along and he goes, oh, absolutely not. He's like, you are the king of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You will not wash my feet. I can do it by myself. I get somebody else to do it. You're not going to wash my feet, Jesus. You're too great. I, I, I got this on my own. But I love Jesus' response to Peter because he, he goes to him and he says, but, but Peter, if, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part with me. Like, if I don't wash your feet, then you're not with me. You're not in relationship with me. You're not able to receive from me. You have no part with me. And so even though people usually use this story as a way of talking about the humility of Jesus, which it is, I also think it's about the humility of Peter. Because after that, after Jesus says that, he's like, you have no part with me. Peter's like, oh, well, okay, hold on a second. Like, wash my whole body, wash my hand, my heat, my hands, like everything. Let's go. I'm all in. Because Peter realized that we have to humble ourselves to be in a place to receive from Jesus. And for him, that was very physical. It was literally saying, okay, this thing that I think is too lowly that I should be able to do for myself, I have to be humble enough and say, okay, Jesus, you can do that for me. Because I can't, I can't do it for myself. I shouldn't have to do it for myself. Jesus wants to do that. Jesus can do that. He has already done that. We just have to allow him to do that. It's pretty cool because not long after that, Peter writes in his own letter to the church. He quotes a verse in Proverbs where he says, the Lord resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And he learned that so firsthand that, like, I have to be humble to receive from him. His grace, his love, all these different things. In order to really experience and to feel it and to receive it, I have to be humble. Because our default, at least my default, speaking for myself, like, is to do. It's like, what, what can I do? I haven't done enough yet. What else can I do to feel Jesus more or to serve Jesus more or to make him love me more? Like, what can I do? Like, I want something actionable. But that's not always necessarily what, what we need. It's not necessarily that we always need to do something. Because all the, the sort of like things that we think are holy are also not even as holy as we think. I love how in verse 16 it says that, uh, therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new one celebration, or a Sabbath day. It says these things in verse 17 are a shadow of the things to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So like all the things that we do, they're not really holy in and of themselves. They're only holy because they're like, like placeholders for things that are actually holy that exist in the heavenlies. Yes. So the thing itself isn't holy, it's what it represents. So think about something that we do like communion, right? Like we have grape juice, we have bread, maybe like those nasty styrofoam thingies that I used to have to eat in church. Bread's a lot better, I always do bread. But we have these things, and we, and we take it in remembrance of Jesus, right? Because the blood represents, or the grape juice represents his blood, the bread represents his body. But guess what? We're not going to take communion in heaven. Because we don't have to remind ourselves of it, because Jesus will be there in flesh and blood and spirit. So we don't have to, like, use this reminder. So the communion itself isn't holy. It's only holy because it represents Jesus. And the moment that we start thinking that the thing itself is holy instead of what it represents, Jesus, then we've totally missed the point. And we've totally missed Paul's warning that we can't be distracted by a gospel that's focused on anything else but Jesus. Because the things we do aren't holy. They're only holy if they're for Jesus, if we recognize what they are ultimately connected to. I remember one of the things that I learned uh, a few years ago that really changed the way that I viewed my faith and really the way that I structured my life um, was this idea 
that sacrifice isn't holy when it's not necessary. Sacrifice isn't holy when it's not necessary. And I learned that because I was reading the story for the first time uh, in the Old Testament. It's about King Saul, and he's in battle. He's the king of Israel. He's fighting off all of the other nations that are coming and warring against Israel. And he says, we're going to win this battle for the Lord. Like, we're going to win it for him. We're going to go into battle. As a matter of fact, he says, nobody in my army will eat until we win this battle. Like, no one will eat nothing, no spoils of war, no nothing. And if anyone eats, they're going to be cursed. Like, nobody can eat. But unfortunately, his son Jonathan, who is in his army, didn't get the memo. And so he was in battle, and he came upon a place where there was some spoils of war that was like honey, and he just ate it. Because, like, why not? Like, it's like me when I say a Krispy Kreme donut. Like, why would I not partake? It's just there. <laughs> and so he goes, and he eats the honey. And then, like, imagine how awkward that is for, like, the other soldiers. Like, oh, my gosh, the king's son just ate the honey. Did he not, did he not hear what he said that we would do? But they tell me, go, your father made a vow. He said that none of us are going to eat. And so we win this battle for the Lord. And Jonathan's like, he goes to his father. He goes, why would you make this decision? We would have been able to win so much easier if we had eaten. We'd be happy. We'd be healthy. Like, we would be able to have the energy. We would have the morale. Like, if we could do this, like, why would you make this vow? And basically, Jonathan's telling Saul that, that sacrifice isn't holy if it's not necessary. If we look back at verse 23, at the very end of the chapter, it's my favorite verse in this chapter. It says, such regulations, all these rules and things that Paul's mentioning, indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So he's saying it may seem like a great thing, it may look impressive, but it actually holds no real value in transforming your life because only Christ can do that. And so sometimes I think we end up beating up ourselves over things that doesn't actually change it. It just means we're beating ourselves up because we're not transforming ourselves in that because only Christ can do that. So what ends up happening is that we give God things that he never even asked for. And I think that can look like a lot of different things. Sometimes that even just looks like our schedules, right? Like Natalie talked a few weeks ago about having margin and rest. And maybe we have so many things going on. We're volunteering and serving and, and doing all these different things. And we're like, oh, God, I just feel so burnt out. I feel so poured out. I feel like I'm doing all these things with other people. And he's probably saying, oh, there's some things you're doing I never asked you to do. There's some sacrifices that you're giving me that I, I never said. I, in fact, God's like, I would rather you be rested and healthy and happy. But we give him things that he never asked for. And then what ends up happening on the flip side is that we hold back the things that he actually is asking for. Because see, some sacrifices are necessary. And we know that because we see those sacrifices called for in scripture. right? So things like being in community, I think that's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice because it means that sometimes you have to forgive people you don't want to forgive, love people that are hard to love, yeah. walk a mile on the cold to NBC's church to go to weekly worship. That's holy. That's a sacrifice. Things like tithing, giving up 10% of your income and saying, God, like, like you are my provision, and so I know that it all came from you, so I'm going to give it back to you. And that's hard. That's a sacrifice, but it's holy because it's a sacrifice that God asks of us. Spending time with Jesus on a regular basis, he tells us to draw near to him. The more we draw near to God, the more we can see him. But it may be a sacrifice if we have other things in our schedule or other things going on, and it's hard to fit it. Maybe we have to get rid of certain things because that's a sacrifice, but that's holy. Those are things that God has asked us to do. 
And I think sometimes it's hard to tell, right? Because there's certain seasons where God asks us to sacrifice certain things when certain things are good for us or not good for us. I remember um, senior year, uh, and I was basically deciding what I was going to do with my life. Spoiler alert, I did Chi Alpha. Um, but before I knew that, <laughs> thank you. Before I knew that, I was trying to decide what I was going to do. And I, I, I had the offer of craft on the table. The staff was like, if you're in, like you can come. Like This is what you can do. And so I was, had already processed it and thought about it, but I was like, I got to fast about this. So I, I literally, I think I fasted for about a week. Like Every day I didn't eat till sundown. I was like, I'm just not going to eat until the Lord. Like I guess I was waiting for fire from heaven or something. Like I just wanted to be like absolutely sure. And so every day I just wasn't eating, and I was waiting, and I didn't hear anything, and I was fasting and fasting and fasting. And finally one day... I was going on a prayer walk. I don't usually do prayer walks. So I'm not sure why I was doing that. But I went on a prayer walk, and I was fasting. And I felt like the Lord was like, why are you here? And I was like, what do you, what do you mean? Like, I'm, I'm fasting. That's good. That's, that's like a holy Christian thing, right? And he was like, oh, yeah, fasting is good, but not when you already have the answer that you're fasting for. And I was like, oh, you're right, guy. You're right. You're right. <laughs> you're right. Because I already know what he was leading me to. And I already had it right there. I had the open door. Everything was lining up. But I guess I wanted some big sign. And in some ways, it was easier to just not eat for a week than to say, all right, God, I'll do what you asked me to do. Like the real sacrifice was saying, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll come on staff with Kyle. I'll be a missionary. I'll support raise. That was a lot bigger of a sacrifice. But that was the thing that he was actually asking for. And it's different. There have been times in my life where fasting has been great. That's exactly what I needed to do. But not in that moment where. He was very clear of what he actually did want me to do. And so that leads us into our table uh, discussion question, which we'll do for about five minutes. And it's a pretty, not an easy question. It's straightforward. It's not easy to answer. But the question is, what is something you're sacrificing that's not necessary? And what is something you should be sacrificing that is? And like, don't freak out if you're like, oh my god, Julie, you just brought this up 20 minutes ago. I don't even know. Don't worry about it. It's OK. This is what discussions are for. You can just talk through things, maybe think about things that are starting to pop up in your mind. Maybe with your table, you can all talk about different things. Like the idea is for you to kind of start thinking about this. So if you don't have a concrete answer yet, that's totally fine. But just start thinking about it. What are those things? What, what has, do I know God's asking of me that I haven't given yet? And, and maybe there's some things that are burning me out or things that, are, that are, I think I have to do, burdens that I think I have to bear. But actually God's saying, you can take that burden off your back and lay it at my feet. So yeah, take about five minutes and go ahead and discuss. So before we end and respond, and the band can come back up now, um, but before we respond, I want you guys to remember that we talked about Lent during the announcements, right? And so Lent is coming up um, in about a week. Um, and so I think Lent is actually a really great time for us to really think about this and process this because Lent, if you've never practiced it before, like I never really practiced Lent that much before when I was younger growing up because it seemed like a very legalistic thing, right? When we talk about legalism. Because you're like, oh, why would I for 40 days just not do something or, or do something? But I actually think that if we really hone in, we can treat Lent like a time to receive. As a community, we're tithing our time, right? So that's 10% of our time. is about two and a half hours a day for the duration of Lent. Not because we're trying to impress Jesus or because we want to be able to add things to our spiritual resume. But because we want to say, hey, God, all, all I need is you. And I want to put myself in a place to receive from you and hear from you. And the only way to do that is to spend time with him. And say, there's so many things that I can't do for myself, Jesus. So that's why a whole tenth of my day, I'm just going to spend it with you and hearing from you and getting what I need to get from you. We're so used to doing, I think a lot of us are also very used to giving. 
but we're not used to receiving. But that's really how we experience the love and the grace of Jesus, is just receiving. So as we respond right now, I want you guys to really come with a posture of receiving. I want you to come and say, all right, God, whatever you want to do, I'm here. I'm not here to do anything. I'm not trying to work to get to a certain place when I'm worshiping. I'm just here to receive from you because you're good and your grace is enough. So if you feel like you want to pray with someone about some of the things that you're processing after hearing this, if there are things that you already know are like, yeah, this is a burden I'm carrying. I don't have to and I want to lay it at the feet of Jesus. Please feel free to pray with one of our staff. They'll be on the sides and they'll just pray with you. Whatever it is that you're processing, whatever it is that you're thinking, whatever you're feeling. But this is a moment where all of us can just receive from Jesus. I want that to be our posture. So let's worship together.